Um, so this morning, as was announced and has been announced on Slack, and as you've heard probably, we are starting a new series, a new series entitled Our Joy in Christ. Our Joy in Christ is a title. And to unpack, you know, our joy in Christ, that is huge. What does it mean to have our joy in Christ? That is a big idea. So in order to unpack that, we're going to be looking at nine sermons in three major headings. And the first is our joy in the person of Christ, where we will see joy in his incarnation, in in his eternality, in his sovereignty. And then we will look next at our joy in the work of Christ. What has Christ done? We're going to look at his atonement, his resurrection, and his return And then thirdly, we're going to look at joy in the word of Christ. What has Christ said? We're going to look at his word that uh, saves, his word that sanctifies. And then lastly, the sinner's response to that word. So our aim is really to expose you in these days to the joy of Christ by looking at who he is, that is his person, by looking at what he has done, that is his work. And by looking at what he has said, that is his word. So before we begin, if, if you're going to start a series called Our Joy in Christ, my, it might be helpful to begin by, first of all, saying, what is joy? What exactly is joy? And to help understand what joy is, I need an example, a visual example of someone from long ago, one of the spiritual giants who not only taught much about joy, but lived a life of great joy. No other theologian has taught and lived the Christian joy more than Jonathan Edwards. In Ian Murray's biography of Edwards, he records one of the lowest points of Edwards' life, where he would be fired from his pastorate. And there are moments when some churches will turn against their pastor, and even the mighty Jonathan Edwards was not immune to such mutiny. In his church, a council was convened, and that council was convened to decide the fate of Pastor Jonathan Edwards because of Edwards' particular view on communion. He had a view of communion that the church didn't agree with, and they said, we need to take this to the church and decide if you are going to be our pastor. And so one of the council members, his name was David Hall, was part of that council to issue that verdict. And as David Hall uh, reports, he gave a testimony of how Edwards responded when they gave him that verdict that he would no longer be their pastor. Hall said this about Jonathan Edwards. He said this, quote, Edwards received the shock, unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies, and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good. End quote. Edwards was a man whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies and possessed a future that was for his present good. There was an internal happiness, an internal gladness that Edwards would experience despite whatever is happening outside, whatever trials that he was going through. 
being fired from the church that he so loved and so preached so faithfully, the greatest mind of our day was extinguished from his church to then become a missionary pastor to the native Indians. And what, how, how would he respond? He had full joy, great joy. This internal happiness. Dear friends, what we need today is joy, don't we? We need this kind of joy. We need to be anchored to someone who is immovable, anchored to something that is unwavering, that is full of grace and truth, full of mercy, eternal, sovereign, saving, sanctifying, and will be returning to take us home. We need to attach our gladness to someone that even our enemies cannot reach. We need to have our joy in Christ. And as you have noticed in our world today, there's plenty of opinions, there's plenty of complaints about California, there's plenty of complaints about the rise of homelessness, plenty of ideas about crime, corruption, and politics. There's a great deal of breadcrumb trails regarding scandalous social media attacks, viral videos. There's a plethora of all those things but there is a short supply of joy. And so what we want to do for the next nine weeks is really to inculcate you with joy. And this morning, I have the great privilege of opening us up with a sermon that I've entitled, Our Joy in the Incarnate Christ. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. And we will only look at one verse this morning. Verse 14. Some of you may have memorized this very familiar verse, but let's read it. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need help to marvel at such glory. Help us to behold the glorious Christ now. Help us to see him for who you say he is, not for what we want him to be, but help us to understand his fullness of what he is and what he has now become. Oh, God, help us to understand this marvelous, supreme, and glorious Christ, that we would be anchored to him despite the changes in our world, the changes in our circumstances, the trials that we may face, and the heat of the sun as the trials bear down in our lives. Help us to be anchored to the stream of waters that leads us back to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would flourish and not languish. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin with, I want us to look at three headings. The first is the marvel of the incarnation. The marvel of the incarnation. The first phrase that we are going to look at here is is this phrase. He says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. I remember the excitement of learning biblical Greek for the first time. I remember receiving all the instructions from my teacher, and after maybe the third week, all instructors would give students a passage to translate. 
<clears throat> into English, and almost all instructors will always give the Gospel of John as the first passage that you're ever going to translate because the language of John is so easy. It's so simple. The vocabulary is easy. The verbs are easy. The, the, the morphology, the, all, all, all of it is simple and straightforward. And I remember looking at that little phrase, and the word became flesh. For the first time, when I saw the Greek, and I said, I know what that means. I, I, I said, I know what that says. I can see the words. And I remember the amazement, the excitement that I had for the first time, seeing a foreign language thousands of, year, thousands of years old and being able to say, I know what it says. And you know what that does to a young seminary student? Their head puffs up and they're thinking, man, I'm going to write my own Bible. What does this mean? And not, not, nothing at all could be further from the truth. Instead, what was easy to interpret, what was easy to parse what was easy to translate into English that took me a matter of weeks. It's not just me, but all of us, everyone, you could do this in a matter of weeks. I didn't realize that it would take me a lifetime to understand what that means, that the Word would become flesh. This is known as the incarnation. The incarnation, this is a theological term, which means becoming flesh. And it's a marvel that God became flesh. It's a marvel not how he became flesh, but that he became flesh. God, who is called the Logos, the Word. Going back to Gen- uh, uh, John 1, he's called the Logos, which we later understand to be Jesus. This is the Logos, which is Jesus, in verses 17 and 18, which we see to be Jesus, the begotten Son, becomes flesh. And he's called the word for a particular reason. Many people have, a re- have theories of why is Jesus called the Logos. Look in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Why is he called the word? And then in verse 14, and the word was. There's many theories, but it's really very simple. If you turn to verse 18, it explains why he's called the word. Because in verse 18 it says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father He that is the Word, He who is Christ, He explains Him. He has explained Him. How do you explain someone who is invisible? That's who God is. God cannot be empirically evaluated under any means of our human conception of measurement. You cannot measure the height, the length, the depth of God. He is immune to our empirical methods of evaluation. So if God is invisible, how then can we understand what he is like? God sent forth his son, who then becomes the Logos, who is the divine speech. And this is what he does. He explains the Father. He explains God. That word for explain is where we get our modern word for exegesis or the exegete, the passage. He is the one who exposits, explains God. And so that's why he's called the Logos. He is the Word. And this Word has come and become flesh. He is called flesh. He doesn't, it doesn't say that he became a man. It actually is much more blunt than that. He says he became flesh, which means skin and bones. It's a shock to the system. Because at the time, there was probably some docetic 
thinking where God was God, but he appeared only as a man. But John wants to address them and give a very raw description. He came in skin and bones, just like you and me. God joins our human race by becoming one of us. Now, we have to be careful what we mean when we say God became flesh. It does not mean that God changed into flesh. It does not mean that God divested himself of all the attributes of God and turned into a man. He's actually very careful. That is to say, John is very careful to show that God does not cease to be what he is in order to become what he is. He does not cease being God when he became a man. How do we know this? Because in verse 17, it says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This is the Logos. Verse 17, and notice what the Logos, Jesus Christ, is called. He's called, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. He is still and remains to be the only begotten God, the only begotten Son. He remains this, he maintains his Godness, if I could put it that way. He does not forfeit his Godness. He maintains that while at the same time becoming Flesh. Furthermore, he does not become half God and half man. He does not become a demi-god. You sometimes may think that God is like the Greek mythological gods where he is like half God and half man. No, he is truly man and truly God. Now this is important because the early church dealt with heresies that crept into the church when they were trying to understand what does it mean for Jesus to become flesh? What does it mean for God to become flesh? And so some believe that Jesus is the highest created being, but was a created being, along with the Holy Spirit, who was also a created being. This was known as Arianism, and that still exists today. This is primarily the conversation that you will have with the people on Saturday mornings that knock on your door. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe this that Jesus is God, but he's a created God. Well, some believe that Jesus was God, but appeared only to be in human form. That is docetism, which has come from the Greek word dokane, which means to appear or to become like. Some believe that Jesus was God, but only partly man. That was known as Apollinarianism. Some believe that Jesus formed a third nature. Some believe that he was not divine, in his nature, he was not human in his nature, but there was like this, uh, this um, morphed version, uh, this mutant version, if I could say that, into a third new version that was completely altogether a combination of the two. That was known as eutychism. And some believe that Jesus had, if he has two natures, then there's two persons. That was known as Nestorianism. All these theories were born in the early time of the church in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. And so in the 5th century, they said, we need to settle this. We need to understand what do the scriptures say about Jesus? Because it's vital that we understand who Jesus is, lest we get lost into these heretical ideas and more so lose our joy because of them. So in the 5th century, the the, the, a creed was established. That's just a statement of faith. That's all that is. It's a statement of what we believed. In 451 AD, the Chalcedonian Creed was written, and what they did was they put four fences to, con to express who God is. 
they put four fences. And what these fences did was to protect the mystery of Christ as the God-man. They wanted to make sure people did not go beyond what is written and to not exceed, but at the same time maintain the stress and tension of what the Scripture says. The first fence that they said was, Jesus is truly God. He is indeed God. He never lost his deity. He never lost his godness. That's what John 1.18 clearly says. He is the begotten God. Second, Jesus is not only truly God, he's also truly man. He is man. Jesus uh, is described in John 1.14, he became flesh. He, abs- he, ab- he is a man. He became truly a man. And then the third thing that they wanted to show from the scriptures and protect the person of Christ was that he has two natures. He has two natures. He was truly God, and he was truly man. And they were very specific to say that he was truly God and not truly man. Sometimes when we explain Jesus to people, we'll say some terms like, well, he's fully God and he's fully man. And those early writers said, no, 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 don't say the word fully. Because if you were to say Jesus is fully God, you may not leave room for his deity. And at the same time, if you say Jesus is fully God, be careful because now you may not have room for his humanity. So they are very careful to craft these words and say, no, he was truly God and truly man so that he is 100% God and 100% man. So they wanted to preserve both his deity and his humanity. And both of those natures did not mix and confuse and confound and, dis- and diminish because of the other. They both maintained their natures in the person of Jesus Christ. And fourth, and probably the most important one, is that Jesus is one person. He's one person. There's one person. There are some actions that befit his divine nature, and there are some actions that befit his human nature. For example... When Jesus calmed the wind, we don't say his divine nature calmed the wind. When Jesus slept on the boat, we don't say, well, his human nature slept on the boat. We just say Jesus slept on the boat. It simply addresses him as one person, though his activities, his actions may touch, may befit his divine nature, and some actions may befit his human nature. You're always addressing the one person of Jesus. And we understand this. We do this all the time to each other. We do this. This might help understand the two natures of Christ because I understand it's very difficult. For example, when we're complaining that we're maybe gaining a few pounds, we don't say, the fork ate that piece of pie. We don't ever do that. We say, I ate the pie. Or when we apologize to each other, we don't say, oh, I'm so sorry, my lips said those words to you that were really hurtful. No, no, no. We say, forgive me. I said those hurtful things. On and on and on. When a letter is written, we don't say, oh, my fingertips wrote that. No, I wrote that. So why would we divide our parts when we should also not divide Christ and his person? He is one person, though he has two natures. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness that God has manifested himself in the flesh. That's 1 Timothy 1.16. Now you might be asking yourself, why is this so important to maintain the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ? 
Why is that important? It is important because there are times when you might ask yourself, as you are struggling for your joy, and you're asking yourself, can Jesus really understand what I'm going through? He seems so distant, out of touch with my world. There is no way that he understands my trial, my sickness, my children, my job, my paycheck, my paycheck, because he never knew suffering like I know it. He is altogether out there and never understood what it means to be down here. And you may even know about John 1. You may even know, but there are times when we may forget this, that God became a man. To live and breathe in the streets that you walk on, in this earth that is perishing, in this world that has fallen, he knows what it means to be tempted like you and I. When you are tempted, the very same temptation that you face, he faced without sin. Jesus has indeed suffered, and I would argue that he has suffered even more than you, far greater, more than any of us has suffered. But you know, one thing Jesus will never say, though he has suffered greater than you and I, this is one thing Jesus will never say to us. He will never, he will never say these words, you know, I've had a hard life. Yours can't be that hard in comparison to mine. Why don't you just fix yourself up? Your, heart, your life is nothing in comparison to mine. Your life is nothing in comparison to mine. I've been tempted even worse than you. How could you struggle with such little temptation? You have no idea what I went through. Jesus would never say that. Never. Because he's a compassionate Savior. He's one who's described as one who would say to someone who was at the end of their rope, he describes them as someone who was like a broken reed or a smoldering flax. Jesus says he will not break that reed. He will not break that person who is just barely hanging on and say, get over yourself. Jesus would never do that because he's a tender, compassionate Savior. He will not, when someone is excited about something, it may even be a little bit off, and who's excited with a little bit of flame, he will not put that flame out and smolder it out, but instead he will let it Grow, let that flame continue to burn until he eventually will get it right. That zeal for God he will not put out because he's a compassionate Savior, tender, and he's described as a counselor. What kind of counselor is he? He's a wonderful counselor. And at the same time, if we have the wrong Jesus, we may, we may miss all of that. We may miss Jesus in all of the tender compassion that he has. And if we swing the other direction, we might think, okay, he is a wonderful counselor. He is indeed like us. He really gets us, like this new movement that is out there right now where it's talking about how Jesus is so much like us. He gets us is the the name of the website where they always are promoting the humanity of Jesus, that he is a refugee in all of these things. At the same time, if we were to only look at the humanity of Christ... And he's able to sympathize with us, which is wonderful. The question then becomes, but can he do anything about my situation? I understand that he listens. I understand that he hears my cry, but can he do anything about my situation? And of course he can. Because he's not only a wonderful counselor, he's also mighty God. He's able to do something about our situation. That's why we can go to him and plead our case before him. He is both truly man and truly God. 
Now, why did he become flesh? He becomes a man to do what God could not do. That is, die for sinners. In his deity, he could not die. And so what he does is he takes on humanity. He puts on flesh. He became flesh so that he could do what God could never do. And that is die. And not only that, he becomes a man so that he can do what man could never do. And that is love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He becomes the one who is the perfect God-man, the mediator. This is the Christ we preach. This is the Savior that we must attach ourselves to. This is the Savior that is the one that is the marvelous Christ, the wonder of Christ. And this is the one that we must fasten ourselves to. Secondly, look at what it says in John 1. John 1, 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. And the second point I want to make is not only is it the marvelous Christ, not only is He the marvelous Christ, He's also the supreme Christ, the supremacy of the Incarnation. What does it mean that He dwelt among us? That the Word, the Eternal One, would dwell among us. That He became flesh. What does it mean? Well, the Word... Dwell is the verbal form of the noun skene, which is where we get the word tent. It's where we get the word tent. The verb in the, uh, the word for tent becomes this verb. So he literally tented with us. He pitched his tent. He pitched his tent like a tabernacle. And so the, the, the Greek translation of this in the Old Testament, it actually uses the same word in the Exodus account where it says God tabernacled with his people. It's that same word. So he's keying off an Old Testament word of tabernacle. So God then tabernacles with his people. He pitches his tent to live, to live with us. That's the interpretation. That's easy in John. But what does it mean? What does it mean that God would tabernacle and pitch his tent with us? Well, we understand that Jesus became a man. That's the phrase, he became flesh. But why would John choose this phrase to pitch a tent to tabernacle and to signal some old covenant meeting known as the tabernacle that he is now with us? Well, God would tabernacle or meet with his people in a temporary meeting place. That's what a tabernacle was. It was a tent that was 45 by 15 by 15 feet high. It was a, a meeting place in the Old Testament, and it was temporary. It was a temporary meeting place where God would meet with his people. God would meet with his people in this place. And, and, and the, the place was always temporary. It eventually moved to a more permanent tent, uh, place, which was the Temple of Solomon. But even that was destroyed. And now there is no more temple. And so what John seems to be emphasizing in his gospel is that when Jesus tabernacles with his people, he's emphasizing the the supremacy of Jesus in comparison to the old covenant. He's showing the supremacy of Jesus in comparison to the fading Old Testament, Old Covenant rituals and, and, and era because now the new covenant has arrived. Go to John chapter 2. Let me, let me show you this, what I mean by this. Notice the opening miracle, the very first miracle that Jesus performs. It's recorded for us in John chapter 2. It says, and in the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, interesting way to call your mother. He says, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And so the story goes. And so what does Jesus do? He is able to take these water pots that are described in chapter 2, verse 6, where he says this, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish customs of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So John is highlighting there are these Old Testament purification ceremonies that are being performed in this wedding. And what does Jesus do? He takes what these purification pots, these rituals that are bound up in the Old Testament and says, let me show you what these things cannot do. It cannot produce what only I can do. And the symbol that Jesus shows is the conversion of water into wine. Jesus is able to take these Pots of water and produce pots of wine. And F.F. Bruce says it indicates that that point in time for the ceremonial observances of the Jewish law had run its full course. The wine symbolizes the new order as the water in the jar symbolized the the old. The old is now leaving and now we're entering into the new. That's why Jesus spoke of wine. He turned his first miracle of water into wine. It's probably what Isaiah prophesied about the coming new covenant. If you remember in Isaiah 55, when, when God is displayed as like this ancient Near Eastern water vendor. You imagine a water vendor going and crying out to the streets saying, come, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come, buy and eat. And in that illustration in Isaiah 55, there's three beverages that are served, if you remember. He says, come, buy water. Then he says, come, have milk. And then he says, come, have wine. Three beverages symbolizing water, symbolizing life. Milk symbolizing nutrients for your mature growth. And then wine celebrating, uh, a picture of celebration, of great occasion, of joy and happiness. And so Jesus is explaining, I came to bring wine, to bring joy, And how much wine does Jesus give? Well, it says he has uh, gallons, 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, because I'm kind of very curious, I said, well, 30 gallons of water turned into wine. 30 gallons times six, because six water pots, I I did the math, six gallons, 30 gallons times six, and then there's six water pots. That's 2,880 glasses of wine that Jesus was able to convert. Now, don't walk away and say, okay, we're drinking today. That's not the point of that passage. The point is to show that wine was the beverage of celebration, was the beverage of celebration. And Jesus comes to to burst forth the new covenant, the new era of his arrival to bring forth joy, which the old covenant could not do. The old covenant with its laws and purification laws, it could never produce what Jesus is producing, which is joy. Let me give you one more example. Look in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is the passage about where Jesus feeds the multitudes. The disciples come up to him in verse 5 of chapter 6 and they say, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? The sheer size of the audience was overwhelming that surpassed what little money they had to feed them. And so... the, the estimates of the number of men, if you were to count also the women and children, probably amassed to about 20,000 people. 
that were hungry. And so what Jesus did was he was able to not only feed them with five loaves and two fish, but he was able to have a surplus afterwards of 12 baskets of bread left over. And so Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 32, listen to what he says in John 6, verse 32 to 35. And therefore, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, is it, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And then verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who come, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is trying to show that the bread of Moses was a temporary bread that would only offer temporary life. What I am about to give to you is not temporary, but it is eternal. It is one that is lasting. It is one that is going to give you eternal life. The old is going away. The new has come. Because temporary manna gave them temporary life, whereas Jesus, the true bread of heaven, gives them eternal life. Water and food Two essential elements for food and life are both offered by Jesus. Jesus is warning them, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. John six twenty seven. What Jesus is showing is simply this, is that the old covenant with all of its laws and all of its restrictions cannot produce life. It cannot produce life. The old covenant is like this strict taskmaster. It's a pedagogue. It's a school teacher showing you, exposing you to the law. More and more of the law is being heaped upon you. Why? Why the law? To show you your inability to obey it. It's a taskmaster that Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. It's a tutor that leads you to the one who can obey it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who is what's called the end of the law. The one who obeys the law in, its, in, its, in all of its facets. He is the one who obeys it completely. The old were shadows of the, the substance, and the new is the substance itself. The old were shadows of Christ, whereas the new reveals Christ. So what does it mean for us today? What does the incarnation mean? What does it mean to have a supreme Christ? This is what it means. It means that this is the Christian message. It's not about trying harder. It doesn't mean I need to do my best. When people are struggling and, they're, and they're, they're, they're asking for help, the notion is I just need to obey the word. I just need to obey more and more and more. I, 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 I know what you're going to tell them. I know what you're going to say. I need to get in the word. I, I haven't said anything. Maybe, maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe I need to obey more. Maybe I need to do more. Maybe I just need to try harder and do more and pick myself up. That is not the Christian message. That is not the gospel message. That is not the message of Christianity. That is the message of the old where you are bound by the law to obey more and more and more of the law. Jesus says, no. That's the old wineskins. The new wine has come. That cannot produce joy. I came to obey that law on your behalf. I came to live a life that you cannot obey. Your joy is not found in the degree of your obedience because if that were the case, what would that look like? There are going to be some days where you feel great. 
Why? Because I had my quiet time. I obeyed the law. And there's going to be some days where you will feel crummy because I'm not in the Word. I'm struggling in the Word. And so your joy will what? It will waver. It will oscillate based upon your obedience and based upon your disobedience. And so your joy will be ravished and tattered to pieces. So it needs to be anchored on something that does not change. It needs to be anchored on someone who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It must be anchored on someone who has obeyed the law in your place. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why he is the supreme one. That's what it means that Jesus tabernacled amongst us to show that not only is he near, that he is better than the old. The entire message of the Old Testament was showing again and again, do this in order for you to live. But it cannot be done. It cannot be done. And God says, because it cannot be done, let me send someone who can do it for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed he lived amongst us? He didn't just come and depart. He said to people, sin no more. He would say to people, your sins are forgiven. If that's the case, then why didn't he just eject and go back to heaven? No, because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Something else had to be done. Something else had to be done in order for forgiveness to actually take place. Something else had to be done. That takes us to our third point. We've seen at the marvelous Christ. We've seen the supreme Christ. But also we need to look at the glory of Christ. Because the message of this gospel is this, is this offer that Christ gives you is without money and without cost. It's freely given. And yet, so many Christians, even those that are attending here in our church, are still wondering, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What must I do? And Jesus says, no, come to me. I am the one that will give you living waters. I am the one that will give you life. I am the one who will obey this law that condemns you on your behalf. And so this is why he's the supreme Christ. But now we need to move and look at the glorious Christ. The glorious Christ. Look at how this phrase ends. Go back to John chapter 1. Go back to John chapter 1. He says this, And the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That is his, the marvel of the incarnation. He dwelt among us. That is the supremacy of the incarnation. Now, and it says this, And then we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to look at the glory of the incarnation. John finally moves to the point where he now involves himself. Have you noticed? John has not involved himself. He says, the word was this. It became flesh. And he says, the word dwelt among us. It's always in the third person. The, well, the word did this. The word did this. And now, for the first time, he says, and we, I was one. I was one of some who was able to behold him, to see him. John cannot help himself and include himself. I saw him. But then the question we have to ask is, what does it mean that he saw his glory? What does it mean that he saw his glory? Because don't you want to see his glory? I certainly want to see his glory, but what is it? What is this glory? Glory means brightness. It means splendor. It means radiance. It means greatness. How then could John say he saw brightness, 
splendor, radiance, or greatness. Well, some have said that John was part of that unique fraternity of three men who went with Jesus on that mountain. If you remember, when Jesus took with him John, that's Apostle John here, John of Zebedee, and he took his brother James, James of Zebedee, they're two sons of thunder, he took John, James, and then he took Peter. Remember this. They went up to the mountain, and in that mountain, this is where Jesus was described as transfigured. He revealed to them the glorious nature of his person where he shone, it says in Matthew 17, 1 and 2, it's shone like the sun. He was so bright. It says Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and then he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. Man, what what would that have been like to see Jesus in his transfigured state? To to, to see that, what would that have been like? And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, a parallel passage, the same incident, this is what Luke says, they saw his glory in the two men standing with him. And Peter, in his account... Of his, he doesn't have a gospel, even though maybe Mark is his gospel. But in his letter, in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter couldn't help himself and talk about this incident. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, he says this. He talks about that incident of the glory in, the, in that mountain. He says this in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. So here, here this surely must be what is meant by seeing the glory because Luke records it. Matthew records it. Peter records it. All of them record this monumental, amazing, stupendous event where Jesus reveals his glory as a bright, white, shining light. It matches, it fits, it must be what it means that he says, I've seen his glory. That must be what it means. I actually don't think that's what it means. And the reason why I don't think that's what he means is because that's not how John describes glory. John never mentions that in his gospel. John never mentioned that, that monumental event in his gospel. If anyone that would mention that, that amazing event, it should have been John because John was the closest to Jesus. He was the one whom Jesus loved. And so if there's anyone that's going to talk about glory, about seeing it as an eyewitness account, it should have been John, but he, he doesn't mention it at all in his gospel account. Maybe then, if that's not what it is, maybe the glory he speaks of is the visible signs that Jesus performed. Because over and over it says, these were the signs that showed glory. Look how John ends, John chapter 2, verse 11. After the, after the first miracle that Jesus performed in the wedding of Cana, it says this, this was the beginning, I'm sorry, it says this, the beginning of his, the signs, The beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He's talking about glory 
that was based out of his signs. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. Maybe that's the glory that John meant was his signs. Well, I don't think it's the signs either. I don't think it's the signs either. In John's gospel, the use of glory is often associated with miracles. And when people would believe Jesus, then it would be described as something glorious. But as the book of John progresses, the miracles develop and they continue. And as the book progresses, John focuses his attention on Jesus. And Jesus continually says this refrain, if you remember. Jesus repeats this refrain. He would say this over and over. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He would say it in John chapter 7, 6. My time has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, his hour had not yet come. And then in verse 17, chapter 17, go to John 17. Notice what, how he uses this phrase, the hour has come. These things Jesus spoke in lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. The, the hour has come. And now the time of the display of glory is to be known. This is the place where we see the, the greatest display of glory, which is the glory of God on the cross. It was the glory of God on the cross that was described by John as full of grace and truth. That's why I don't think it was the mountain that was glory. I don't think it was the miracles that were glorious because the mountain event did not display grace and truth. The miracles could not have been it because they did not display grace and truth. But beloved, what do you see on the cross? What do you see on the cross? Was it not the glory of God filled with grace and truth? You see, grace is that God would grant undeserving sinners favor. That's why it's called grace. Sinful creatures, He would forgive them. He would forgive them of all their sins, not just some of their sins. That's why it's full of grace. But how does God forgive sinners? How does He do it? Does He just say, be forgiven, and it was so? Does He just say, let there be forgiveness, and it was so? No. Truth must be involved. What's the truth? The truth is you are a sinner. The truth is sin has a price. The truth is sin must be paid for. The truth is you must pay or someone else must pay. And if you pay, you will pay an eternity of suffering and torment in hell or someone else must pay on your behalf. And that someone else is my beloved son who pays the price and the penalty of your sin. Well, then how can he die? He becomes a man. That's the truth of who Christ is. He becomes a man. He becomes the God-man living a life that you could not live. He lives it on your behalf as your substitute. That's the truth. He is not just an atonement for you. He's a, a substitute for you. He dies on your behalf. That's the truth. That's the grace that he gives to you. The question I ask is this, what do you see on the cross? Do you see pain? Yeah, certainly there's pain on the cross. Do you see suffering? Certainly, I see suffering, anguish. I see blood on the cross. Do you see injustice on the cross? 
I see injustice. A man who committed no wrong was wrongfully accused. I see injustice. But do you see glory in the cross? I don't know if I see glory. Help me to see glory. The only way you can see glory in the cross is if you see grace in the cross. If you see the grace of God in the cross, that God becoming a man, taking up sinful flesh, Romans 8 says, the likeness of sinful flesh, and dying and paying the penalty of our sins. But why would He do that? Why would God do that? You must see the marvel of the cross. If you don't see that, you will not see the glory of the cross. But why would He take a penalty, commits, why would He take sin not His own? Because the truth is, He did that out of love for you. He did it out of love for you. A man, unbeknownst to you, did that out of love for you. That's why John says, we beheld glory. Not just any kind of miraculous glory. Not just a bright white kind of glory. But a glory unlike any other. The the most amazing kind of glory. The glory of the cross. So that is the most important question that you need to ask yourself. It's what do I see? What do I see on the cross? And if you see glory, praise the Lord, because you've been able to see grace. And unbelievers don't see glory on the cross. That's why people will come to our church and marvel, why do you sing so much about the blood? I do not get it. And here we are as Christians celebrating Regularly, and Jesus wants us to continue to be mindful of that blood that he shed on the cross. On a regular basis, we're reminded of that, to remind us of this particular glory where we see something so full of grace and truth. And notice what happens when we see this glory. He says in John 1, verse 16, and he says, For of his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace, out of the fullness of the Logos, out of the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, I just want to camp out on that little prepositional phrase, grace upon grace. That word upon is this word anti, anti. Just a few weeks ago, we had a message about the Antichrist, meaning someone who is in the place of the Antichrist is someone who is taking the place of Christ. But when you behold the wonder and the glory of Christ, this is how this would then be understood. Instead of grace upon grace, it might be better to say that of His fullness, we have received grace in place of grace. The idea is that once you know Christ and know His joy, you know who He is, you're anchored to Him, you will receive grace, and when that grace runs out, There's more grace in its place. And when that grace runs out, there's more grace in its place. It's this never-ending stream of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace that is like this overflowing well that never ceases. Grace that never runs out. William Barclay says this, We need one grace in the days of prosperity and another in the days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another when the shadows of age begin to lengthen. The church needs one grace in the days of persecution and another when the days of acceptance have come. 
We need one grace when we feel that we are on top of the things of the world and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near despair. And here's the good news, friends. If you anchor your joy in Christ, that grace never runs out. Grace never runs out. The the all-powerful one has a supply of grace that never ends. That's why the psalmist would say, I shall lift up my cup of salvation. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? In other words, how can I pay him back? Psalm 116 says, how can I pay back God for all the kind things that he's given to me? I will lift up my cup of salvation. The idea is, can I pay him back? No, I can only ask for more. Fill my cup again, God. Fill my cup again over and over and over of grace because can I pay you back? No, I cannot. The only thing that will make him more glorious is asking for grace. Oh God, I depend upon you. That's what makes him glorious is when he sees his people asking for help. It speaks to his fatherhood. It speaks to his children dependent upon him. Oh dear friends, may you anchor your joy in the glory of Jesus Christ and there, did, you, did you know this? That in heaven, he remains the God-man. In heaven, right now, he remains the God-man. And he will permanently be the God-man. And that is good news. Because if he is the permanent God-man, that means our joy will also be permanent. Our joy will not change. Jo- Jesus will not change again. He remains forever the God-man. Oh, may it be said of us what David Hall said of Jonathan Edwards, may it be true of him that there would be in us a happiness beyond the reach of our enemies and a future that is our present good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to have this marvelous, supreme, and glorious joy that we can find in Christ. It is unthinkable. Why? Where else would we go? Where else shall we anchor our joy to in this world that is constantly bombarding us of temptations, of bitterness, of vengeful thoughts? Help us, God, to be mindful that you came down to be with us, that you are now with us by the Holy Spirit. That we have direct access to you. That you are a tender, compassionate one, a sympathetic high priest that we can approach with great confidence that will not scold us, that will not point his finger at us and say, how could you? But he says, I know what it means to be tempted. You are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Therefore, sin no more. Repent, child. Repent from your sins. Oh God, help us to approach this Christ in this way. And maybe we have forgotten. And because we have forgotten, we have lost our joy. And so help us once again to see him for who he truly is. Not just God. Not just man. But the God-man the glorious Christ, and in his name we pray, amen.